0: Finally, I realized that the picture was distorted. Self-reflection, it was broken. But my heart, it wasn't open to an open-handed, open-hearted, wounded healer. Those wounded hands reaching out to try to save me. But I was too ashamed, and I was too afraid. So I pulled my hand away, cutting my hand on broken frames, self-inflicting my own pain. In this season that we're facing together as a community, one of the things that's difficult is that sometimes it feels like God has forgotten us in some way. I was thinking this week about the time that i spent as a youth pastor here at the church and one of the difficult moments of my week a lot of weeks was after youth group after all the kids went home oftentimes there'd be like one kid left whose parents were a long time in coming to pick him up i have this one kid in mind who so often his mom was just so late and he'd hang out with his friends he had fun for a while but then you start to see this Sadness and panic on his face when all his friends are gone and it's just him and all the volunteers And we're cleaning the room. We're turning off the lights. We're locking the doors We're sitting out in front of the youth building and his mom's still not here And then it's just me and the intern and him and we're waiting and we're waiting and this is before kids had cell phones So he's picking up my phone and calling his mom calling his mom. No one's answering and now it's 9 30 now it's 10 30 Then the security guys come by and say, hey, we're locking the place up. We gotta lock the gates. And so then we'd walk down the driveway, sit on the curb on John Drive and wait. And you see the kid just feeling abandoned and discouraged and angry because it's happened before. And finally uses my phone and his mom picks up. And and every single time I would hang out with a kid who got a hold of his parent who was super late The kid would ask two questions of their mom or dad. They would ask, where are you and what are you doing? Where are you? Where are you, right? This is a question of proximity. Are you around the corner? Are you still at home? Are you at work? Are you out with your friends? Have you forgotten about me altogether? Where are you right now? How long will it take for you to get to me because I want you to be here because I want to be out of here? Where are you? And second what are you doing? This is less of a question of of proximity and more of a question of a value, of importance, of priority, right? What is it that you're doing that is so important that it's caused you to forget about me, your child who's here with some people he hardly knows, sitting in the cold, in the dark, on the curb, waiting for someone who seems to have forgotten me. In a season that we've been living in for the last several months, as I talk to people in our church and in our community, it feels like those two questions, even about God, are starting to come up more and more. God, where are you right now? I look around this world and I see all the things that are happening and I'm wondering, God, where are you in location to all that's happening in our broken world? God, what are you doing? Are there are so many hard things that are happening. There are so many desperate things that are happening. God, you, we know you're doing something, but can you give us a glimpse of what you're doing? What is it that is so important, God, that you are doing that you seem to be neglecting some of these deep and hard things that we're experiencing together as a community? God, where are you? God, what are you doing in our world right now? And this week has been a really hard week for a lot of people. I don't know what it is this week, but I just feel like I've had a, a larger than normal amount of phone calls with people who are experiencing loss, people in their families who've passed away, people who are on hospice care, loved ones who are in their last days of life. And it's hard. And this is the seasons when we ask God, where are you? What are you doing? Why are you not answering my prayers? Why are you not bringing healing? Why are you taking so long and answering God? Where are you and what are you doing? i talked to people who have brokenness in relationships this week. They're isolated, they're lonely, they're alienated from their friends sometimes because of conflict, because of past wrongs, because of a lot of different things. And now in this season where you can't find new friends, you can't build new connections, it feels like you've been abandoned by everyone, including God himself. This is a hard season in our social relationships, in our world, in our political sphere, on Facebook and even in our relationship with God. God, where are you? And God, what are you doing? In the series, we started talking about the idea of boundless, that God is in heaven doing whatever he wants, but that doesn't give a nice answer to us who are down here on the ground saying, but what about here? How does it intersect with what's going on Here, last week, we talked about worshiping idols and the places we go other than God. And sometimes we start to realize, well, the natural reason we go to these idols is because it feels like the God that we're calling out to is being silent. And so, God, we want to come to you. We say, God, we want to be connected to you, but it's difficult when it feels like God is somewhere other than here and a long time in Today, as we continue in our series, we're going to take another step in this idea of wrestling with the sovereign God of the universe in terms of how how he relates to human life. And I'm going to look at a passage of scripture together today in the book of Colossians chapter 1. So if you have Bibles, you can turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 15 and talk a little bit as the Apostle Paul answers both of those questions in this chapter of where is God and what is he doing? And so we are going to look at this chapter. We're going to talk about how it relates to our life, and we're going to learn how we can find peace in trusting a God that sometimes feels like he has forgotten to pick us up on this earth he's left us on. And so uh, join with me in Colossians chapter one, if you haven't turned there already. You know, last week, as we talked about idolatry, I was in the chat room on Sunday mornings. Some of you are in the chat room right now, and um, people are commenting on the sermon and making comments on what Larry's saying and, the very end of one of the services in the morning services, uh, somebody made a comment that kind of hit me. They said uh, something along the lines of human beings love to worship idols, like real tangible things, and that's why God gave us Jesus. And when he said that, I knew what he was saying because Jesus, in a lot of ways, is this tangible God. We talked about that on Sunday night after our Uh, parking lot service, that that Jesus is this tangible God we can touch and face. And in a sense, it makes sense that God gave us Jesus because human beings are wired to love things that they can touch. But at the same time, it was really hard to see that sentence because it's difficult for me as a pastor and as a Christian To think about Jesus as being someone who's in any way related to an idol, right? Especially after the sermon Larry gave last week that talked about how powerless and futile idols are, how we turn to these false gods, these things that don't give us fulfillment, don't give us meaning. And so I knew what the guy was saying and I understood the sentiment, but at the same time, it took me several days to kind of wrestle through that statement because I'm wondering, man... I don't feel like Jesus and idols should live in the same conversation at any level. Then I read Colossians chapter 1. And in Colossians chapter 1, it looks like the Apostle Paul is on purpose trying to put Jesus and idols in the same conversation, right? If you look here at verse 15, the the way that Paul describes Jesus, he says, The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Now, If you know about idols from the Old Testament, Exodus 20, the third commandment talks about us not worshiping idols. It says, you shall not make for yourself any image to replace God, whether it's things on heaven or things in earth or things under the earth, there should be no images of God created. And then Paul uses the exact same language, right? Not the Greek word for idol, but a similar word, the word for icon to say that Jesus is the image of God in heaven. Now, Paul goes so far in the next sentence to start using some of the same language from Exodus 20. He talks about Jesus being over the things in heaven and the things on earth, borrowing language from the idolatry conversation in Exodus 20. And it feels like Paul is trying to drag Jesus into the same conversation that we have when we think about worshiping tangible, idolatrous things. At first, it's a little bit of a a pushback there, but I want to dive into what Paul means when he compares Jesus to idols, because if idols, like we talked about last week, are impersonal, powerless, fake, human-created things that do not give us real answers or hope, if Jesus, in a lot of ways, is the good and better version of that, all of us right now are in a season where we are longing deeply for something that is powerful, for something that is personal, for something that can transform, that can reconcile, that can change the world, that can give us hope. If an idol is everything that's wrong with religion, the opposite of an idol is what all of us need, a personal, tangible God that we can reach out and connect with at a deep and personal level level. And so I think in, in terms of talking about how Jesus relates to idolatry, it's important to understand where idols come from. And so I'm going to give you the 30 second, maybe 45 second version of where idols come from, right? It's going to start with the word creation, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he created this context for all things to worship him and live in perfect harmony with one another. But if you read the scriptures, you know that the second step there is sin and brokenness entered the world. Adam and Eve, the first humans, bring sin into the world, and from there, like a disease, the world becomes broken at every, le- at every level, right? Human relationships with God are broken. Human relationships with each other are broken. Humans are broken on the inside. The relationship we have with nature is broken. Nature is warring against itself. Everything is broken and breaking inside of us, outside of us, visible things, invisible things, because of sin's entrance into the world. So we have creation, and then sin, and then brokenness, and then we have you, A human being who stepped into a world that God had created for harmony and yet sin had broken it and now you're in a place where your world is broken, you are broken and everything in you is tainted and broken in some way because of the sin that has broken everything. Right, so that's where idols come in, is that we are people who create idols because sometimes we long for things that we shouldn't be longing for, and we think the idol of money can get us happiness, right? We long for fame, and so we think that doing this pathway down idolatry towards fame is going to get us happiness, right? We go down these wrong paths, and we pursue these false idols to get something that sometimes is bad, sometimes is good, sometimes we make good things, ultimate things. And in this scheme, in this world in which, we're, in which God has placed us, we exist in this broken world and so often, like we talked about last week, we pursue idols to get things that don't give us fulfillment, don't make us happy, and really just perpetuate the cycle of brokenness within us. You know, the season that we're in right now, a lot of us are, are pursuing things that we hope will change the world. We feel like if, if, that politics could change the world. We feel like uh, sometimes that we can change the world. We feel like sometimes having more money can change our world or looking better can change our world. right? And there's this idolatry that comes when we have this thing that we want and we just try to pursue it through these things that never can make us happy. So Paul brings Jesus into this conversation. And the question is, well, where does Jesus fit on this diagram? And the, the most logical, easiest place to put Jesus on this diagram is you cross out the word idol and you replace it with the word Jesus, right? As Christians, we are people who should not seek after idols to get the things that God has for us, but we should seek after Jesus to get the things God has for us right we should not look to money or fame or health or anything or anything for fulfillment we should look to jesus for fulfillment and so in a lot of ways like the person in the chat room said and even like paul is saying that jesus has created in the, that jesus is the image of the invisible god we cross out idol we put in jesus and we say that we're fine but it's interesting as we read on in this passage paul uses just a few words to say that jesus kind of replaces the idol sent part of this diagram But then he goes on from there to describe the place of Jesus in our world and he blows the whole diagram out of the water, right? He says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God and then he moves forward in the next part of the sentence is that he says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. All right, firstborn does not mean that Jesus was born, it does not mean he was the first person who was born, anything like that. Firstborn is talking about Jesus' positional authority over all creation. He's the firstborn son, in a sense. He's the heir of the inheritance. He has all the rights and privileges of the family. He is the ruler, the authority figure over all things. And Paul, as he keeps talking, continues to show how Jesus has ultimate power and authority over everything. He says, by Jesus, all things were created. Heavenly things, earthly things, visible things, invisible things, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created for Jesus, through Jesus, by Jesus. He said, Jesus is the head of his church. Jesus is the first of those who are risen from the dead. So that in all things, Jesus might have the superiority, the the supremacy, the preeminence. And Paul says, if you're looking at this diagram, of course, Jesus instead of idols But even more than that, Jesus above all other things. That's where he belongs. Now, preeminent means that Jesus is above, he's before. In terms of timeline, he is eternally before all of creation. And in terms of authority, he is infinitely above all creation. What Paul is trying to say is that if you're wondering where Jesus is, he's on his throne. He is above all things in power. He is above all things in authority. He is above all things in every way. And the Greek word for all things means all things, right? Paul belabors that point. All things, heavenly things, earthly things, visible things, invisible things, right? Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, the church, life and death itself. Jesus is above all things things. If you're wondering where God is, I will tell you where he is. God is on his throne. I think the reason that that Paul takes so much time to, to show us all the areas that God is, or Jesus is supreme over, is because in the world that we live in, it feels like God is not ruling over a lot of things. Right? We have to remember that as we think about that diagram that we walked through, there is sin and brokenness at every turn of the world in which we're created. Right? Even in the most ultimate way, when Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn over those who have risen from the dead, Paul is saying that Jesus has authority over life and death itself that someday every human being will stand before Jesus and Jesus and Jesus alone will decide the fate of every human being who ever exists whether he escalates them into eternal life or condemns them into eternal damnation Jesus has the keys of all of life for every human being but at the same time the very fact that death exists the very fact that hell exists, the very fact that some of us will stand before God and get bad news on Judgment Day reminds us that Jesus is the ruler currently of a broken and breaking and sinful world and system and series of systems. Or we see that when he goes, take a step back, when he says Jesus is the head of his body, the church. We know that Jesus is the head of this church and the head of all churches. But if you've been a Christian for a while, or even if you haven't, you know, the church is perfect. The the churches have to submit to the rule of Christ, but we are sinful people, sometimes feeling we're stumbling around trying to figure out God's direction and churches make mistakes and Christians make mistakes and evil people come to power even in churches sometime and they use churches for their own devices and terrible things have been done by the hands of Christians in history. So the fact that Jesus is the head of the church does not change the fact that even the church of Jesus, his own body exists in a broken and sinful world. We apply that same hermeneutic to all these other things on Paul's list, the heavenly things, earthly things, visible things, invisible things. And Paul is saying that Jesus is the authority figure over every single aspect of our broken and hurting world. We think of the heavenly places. Jesus is the commander-in-chief of the angelic army. The angels are at the command of Jesus Christ from his throne. But we also know that that many of that angelic army has fallen into sin and have stepped uh, into that term we call demons, right? We have Satan, the prince of this darkness, um, and these armies and legions of demons. We know that a lot of things that are happening in the world are these invisible forces that are destroying things. Right? you read the scriptures, you hear about things like demonization and demon oppression and demon possession. We see individuals whose lives are ripped apart by actual spiritual invisible forces who are not submitting to the reign of Christ. We see in the scripture things like generational sin where people have passed down uh, things that have been hard to the next generation, the next generation, and almost like these regional and territorial demons that can exist that bring oppression to a place for long, long times. Paul is saying that Jesus is the king of the good and the evil, visible and visible, heavenly and earthly forces, and from his throne he is ruling and reigning over our broken world. Right? We read the scriptures and we see that Jesus is not just in control. And Paul says Jesus is not just in control of the spiritual things, but the physical things as well. And we see in Romans 13, the idea that God is in control and Jesus is in control of all of our earthly human authorities as well. Right? Paul is talking about rulers and kings and governing authorities in this chapter and in Romans 13. And in other places in the scriptures, when we're called to pray for these people because they have to give an account, because they have to submit to Jesus of how they ruled. And we know when there are good rulers in a human sense, good kings, good presidents, good governors, these people who have submitted their lives to Christ will stand before him and receive accolade from Jesus, not just based on their relationship with him, but how they ruled on his behalf. Because every ruler on planet earth ultimately is submitting or should be submitting to the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the ruler of rulers, Jesus Christ. But we know that there are bad rulers in our world. We have evil rulers in world history. We have bad rulers without character in our country, right? We have rulers who rule wrongly, who make mistakes, who do evil, who have hatred. There are men and women who try to rule over people and they do not represent Jesus in any way. And yet the scriptures tell us they still work for Jesus. They're just in rebellion against him, they refuse to submit. To him instead of stewarding their positional authority they're using it for their own devices and someday they'll have to stand before christ and give an account of how well they ruled his kingdom with the keys they were handed doesn't change the fact that they're ruling for jesus they're just ruling poorly and jesus is in control of the good things the bad things the visible things the invisible things invisible things like the powers in our world that, that control us and keep us down I've been thinking a lot lately of all the conversation we've been having as a society that has been drawing out the fact that there are a lot of invisible forces that are controlling a lot of society, right? We think about your family dynamic, right? Every family has its own dynamic. Every family has its own culture. Some Some families have a really hostile or abusive culture in their home, and that's an invisible, almost intangible force that you can kind of feel, but it it causes fear, and it causes disheartening, and it, it causes all types of angst, this invisible force that is hurting you within your own home. Other families have amazing cultures where love is flowing and service flows, and that's the culture, this invisible property of your family. And Paul says that Jesus is in control over even the invisible forces of our world, You know, in the conversations we're having as a society right now, we're hearing about invisible forces. People are talking about things like institutionalized injustice or systemic racism or workplace hostility. These types of ideas of of gender-based bias or racial-based bias or long-term invisible things that keep people down. These are people describing invisible forces that are real and that affect human beings on this earth. And what Paul says about the invisible forces on earth is that Jesus is on his throne over everything, not just the good forces, but also the bad forces, no matter it's a good president, a bad president, a good force, a bad force, a good angel, a fallen demon, whatever it is, Jesus Christ is on his throne and in his position to rule and reign over every aspect of creation that's the position he has. That's where he is. He's on his throne. This doesn't give us a a lot of (laughs) lightness in this season because a lot of the things that we're experiencing are all the bad and broken things in this world. And and so that question comes back, okay, God, well, you're in charge of this world, but what are you doing? You have authority over COVID-19. What are you doing with COVID-19, God? God. God, you have authority over the racial history of our country. Okay, what are you doing to bring justice, God? A lot of us are crying out that God would do more, that he would rule differently, that he would change the hearts of leaders, that he would do different things in our society, that he would change the tides of history, change the culture in which we live. And we hear that he's on his throne. We hear that he technically is the boss of all of these different aspects of human and all creation's existence And yet we come back to God and we ask the deeper, more personal question, God, what are you doing? We're calling our mom and she's, oh yeah, I'm still at work. So what are you doing at work? I'm here stuck with my dumb youth pastor here on the side of the road, missing you, longing for you. What are you doing? I know a lot of us right now have been praying prayers along those lines of God, I'm with this person that I love and I'm watching them make these terrible choices. God, I know you're in charge of all this, but what? What's your plan? What are you doing here? We're crying out, God. I know that you say that you have a heart for justice and equity in our world, and yet I see the world falling apart. God, what are you doing from your throne? And Paul doesn't say, "Well, well, God's busy. That's what he's doing. He's too busy to deal with your stuff." Right? God doesn't say, "I'm working on it." Right? That's not the response of God. When we look at the text we see a picture of what God is doing from his throne that I think we need to wrestle with and understand how it relates to our lives here on this planet. It's in Colossians chapter one. At the end of this description of all that Christ, where he is in authority, and then he says in verse 19, he says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. And then he says this in verse 20, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, where is God? He's on his throne. But what is he doing? According to Paul, what God is doing is he's reconciling all things to himself through Jesus Christ. He's reconciling. That's what he's doing. You know, when you look at that chart that we started with uh, of Jesus over all things, and then creation, and sin, and brokenness, and then you and your idols or your Jesus that you connect with, I think what Paul is drawing out is that Jesus is not just the top of this chart, and he's not just the end of this chart, and he's not just the top and the end of this chart, but Jesus stepped right into the middle and started a work of bringing things back to the way they're supposed to be again. When we think about the person and work of Jesus Christ, we think about the Jesus who is above and before all creation, and yet when sin entered into the world, Jesus started a plan to step into the brokenness of this world. Though he himself knew no sin, he bore the sins of the world in his body on the tree. He walked into a broken world. He gave us glimpses of what the real renewed creation should look like in his miracles. And then he died for sin at the hands of sinful people on the cross. Then he came up from the grave, raised to new life in victory, ascended into his heavenly seat and sat down and began to rule and reign. And so when we think about Jesus in relation to this system, Jesus is before creation. He created creation. He came and solved the sin problem. He stepped into our brokenness. He came into your life and reconciled you with God. He became the person you can go to to bring reconciliation and peace and harmony into the world and then he ascended onto his throne and he is in a position where he is currently reconciling all things to himself through his heavenly work with his authority and power on his heavenly throne. Jesus is on his throne and the work that he is doing is a work of reconciliation. Now the question that, that, that brings for all of us is, is do we trust that he's working? Because the work of reconciliation that Jesus is doing is, is working through a lot of good and a lot of bad things in our world. Do you trust that Jesus can bring reconciliation to all things through, through broken systems? Do you trust that Jesus can use hard things that are happening in this world to bring goodness and reconciliation to the world? Do you trust that God can use the hard things in your life to weave the fabric of the world back together again? Do you trust that God can reach someone who's far from him and change their life? Do you believe that God can reconcile the relationships that are broken in your life? And do you believe that you can trust Jesus, that everything we see happening in the world today is somehow under his command and he is working through all things towards a master plan of reconciling all things? things to himself, putting creation back together again. You know, I've talked to a lot of people in this season who have different views of what God is doing, and one of the things that I hear a lot is people say, you know what, this is what's going to happen. The world's going to go to hell, and then Jesus is going to come back, kind of firebomb the whole thing, and he's going to fix it all, All right? Because I think you can read the end of the scriptures, and you see that Jesus comes back in judgment, recreates the heaven and the earth, and brings this kingdom in, but as you look at the whole story of scripture, we see that that's not fully true. We see that Jesus on his throne right now is working to bring justice and harmony to this world. He's reconciling men and women to himself. He's reweaving the fabric of society. He's bringing goodness and good things into being. He's doing that work. And yes, someday it will happen in an ultimate sense. Yes, sin will still be with us until the day Jesus returns and removes sin itself from the equation. Yes, there will always be impoverished people among us. Yes, there will always be brokenness in society. Yes, there will always be sickness and death until Jesus comes back. But even though that is true, until Jesus comes back, he is working currently to reconcile all things to himself. You know, don't over-spiritualize it and say that the only reconciliation that Jesus does is reconciling people to God, because Paul says here, everything means everything. He re- re- reiterates this concept here of things on heaven, things on earth, all things to himself, not just human beings, right? The work of Jesus in the world today is not merely turning men and women who are lost into Christians. Jesus is reconciling Everything to himself, he's reweaving the creation back to the way that he intended it to be. Now, as you look at this last sentence here, one of the operative words that Jesus is bringing and making is says that he's making peace through his blood that was shed on the cross. Now, we talked about, obviously, we know peace between man and God, but this, this idea of peace in the scriptures, uh, in the Old Testament, the word was shalom. You may have heard the word shalom before. Peace is kind of the opposite uh, of brokenness and sin in the diagram that we showed you earlier. Uh, Peace, if the world is a net, that is everything is connected, sin comes in and starts breaking off all of the relationships and breaking this net of harmony. Peace, the description of peace, according to the scriptures, is not merely an absence of conflict, but it's a presence of harmony. So peace is the work of weaving the net back together again, mending the net of society, bringing people back together in reconciled relationships, bringing men and women back into reconciled relationships with God, putting nature back the way that it should be, putting the systems of this world back the way that it should be, bringing justice and equity into our broken world, turning people into worshipers of God, having our character being rewoven into the image of Jesus Christ. Every aspect of the work of Jesus is the work of reweaving society into what it was intended to be when it was created by him, before sin started snapping the pieces of the net apart again. God is on his throne. He is reconciling. He is weaving together the world again. And so the question for us as we live in the world this week is, can we trust that he's at work? As you're dealing with someone that is going through a really hard time and they're asking, where is God in all this? Can you say with honesty, God is on his throne. God is in charge. He's doing something. Those verses like we see in Romans of God work causing all things to work together for the good of those who love him are important in this season because we have to trust that God is not merely on his throne watching our world on fire, but we have to trust that God is on his throne ruling and reigning through the good and the bad and the evil and the holy systems of this world, and he's working to bring reconciliation of all things to himself and primarily through the work of Jesus and his death to end sin, to end brokenness, and to bring in a new era of peace and harmony with God. And being a Christian does not mean that you never feel isolated or lonely, like a kid being forgotten after youth group. But being a Christian does mean that you are learning to trust that God is in control and that God is at work in all things, even when it feels like he's forgotten us. I wanna pray for us as we close that, that God would solidify that in our hearts and allow us to be men and women and kids who can trust that he's in control, that he knows what he's doing and that what he's doing is ultimately good and beautiful so that we might learn to partner with him in his work. Let me pray for us and we'll close. Father, we trust you. We know that your son Jesus is on his throne, that he is seated at your right hand, that your spirit is interceding for us, that when we come to you, the spirit brings prayers into the ears of Christ, and he whispers those, in a sense, into your ear, and you can do the things that you hear from us that... The Godhead itself has invited us into that throne room and we are part of this powerful and beautiful and holy dynamic that we somehow are being used to bring good and goodness into the world just by being your salt, being your light. And we know that part of this equation is coming to Jesus to bring change to the world. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bring change to this world. We pray that, Jesus, you would come quickly and bring ultimate justice and goodness and holiness to the world in which we live. And Jesus, as we live in this world, we pray that you would give us the faith, the trust that you are not merely the one we go to, but you are the one who comes before us and who is above us. And that we would revel in the fact that you stepped into our world, into our brokenness, took on our sin to start reweaving the fabric of creation back together again. We thank you that you found us, that you wove us back together in relationship to you. Thank you that you've reconciled so many of our human relationships. Thank you that you've used so many of us to bring justice and beauty and equity and assistance and relief into this world. We pray that you would continue to grow us into your image as individuals, as a community, and you would allow us to carry your image and carry your kingdom into the world in which you've placed us. And we pray that we would trust that you are on your throne and that you are working and that you are powerful, even within the brokenness of the world in which we live. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for watching. Hopefully you were encouraged by what you saw today. My name is Danny. I'm the pastor at Three Crosses. And I just want to encourage you, if you're looking to connect more, you can check out our website, threecrosses.org. We stream our services every Sunday. You can jump in on that. Or if you live in the San Francisco Bay Area, come and find us. We'd love to connect with you. Before you go today, hit the subscribe button. Keep up to date with what's going on week after week. We'd love to stay connected. Have a great one.